Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Bow Rush Podcast. I'm Scott Nelson with my co-host Travis Stowe. Travis, how you doing today, bud? Man, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Uh, you know, I'm doing great. You know, I'm really excited. We left off uh, for about a week, week and a half. We're just picking up, getting getting back into this podcast, and and we have a great guest on today. It's, you know, we're bringing a guy named O'Neill Williams on. And someone that, you know, you had reached out to, um, and we, we've both been a fan of for quite a while. He's got a national radio show. He's got a television show. He's got over 50 years of experience in the woods. You know, talk to us. How were we able to get him on today? One, I've followed him for many years, and even in the early mornings, the AM radio station. And it's, it's definitely a good talk. We had this topic that we wanted to cover, and I felt that he had a really good foundation um, so what I started looking for is trying to find out what's the best way to reach him. Surprisingly enough, he's a down to earth person. He loves to, to share his knowledge. And so I started emailing him. He called my cell phone and we chatted for a good 15, 20 minutes. And I just told him the topics we wanted to discover and he was all in. He was completely for it. He's going to talk a little bit about the, the simplified way of, of why he calls, you know, a lot of people are heavy on rattling, heavy on grunting, using them for locating calls. You know, O'Neill has a completely different side, and he believes in using doe bleats and grunts in a different way, um, a more simple way. And I think he has some great points that people kind of overthink it sometimes. Yeah, and one of the things that we want to make sure that our, our listeners know is that from our original podcast, we wanted to help, and our idea is to help bridge the gap between hunters that are strictly bow or the extremists to the people that do, uh, they choose to do bow or muzzleloader or rifle, whatever it might be. A hunter is a hunter. It doesn't really matter which tool you use. It's really the tactics on how you achieve it. Um, I think that might be a good topic. And so you want to try to get this one out? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. This is O'Neill. Hey, well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We, we really appreciate you taking some time out uh, to, to come on and, and talk with us a little bit. It's my pleasure. If it helps you guys and it helps other people who might be listening, then I'm O'Neill is all in. Oh, that is awesome. Your name is O'Neill Williams, correct? Yes. And you've been hunting for, oh, what, 30, 40 years or how much longer? Uh, longer than that, guys, uh, in the territory of 50 plus. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm older than you guys, so uh, uh, let me introduce myself a little bit. I'm 71 years old yesterday, so... I've been I've been around uh, and and able to learn from a lot of folks over time. So with age, definitely becomes the wisdom. Yes, it does. Well, <laughs> I got to tell you, for some people I know, it hasn't worked. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they didn't heed advice of the elders as they were growing up. That is correct. Well, you know, tell us a little bit about your hunting past, um, kind of where you grew up and and where you really cut your teeth on hunting. Okay. Uh, I'm a Georgia native. I graduated from high school in Georgia in South DeKalb County, Southwest DeKalb High School. I went to Emory University. And I graduated there in 1965, and that's about the time that I started uh, whitetail hunting. I had done, you know, the walking in the woods, uh, squirrels, rabbits, whatever, uh, and some dove hunting prior to that. But the big game hunting that we'll call whitetail hunting didn't happen until 1965. So it was in the territory of uh, 50 years ago, uh, and that's what got me started, and I've hunted everything now. Uh, in the, well, having a television show, believe me, permits you to go lots of exotic places from South Africa to Alaska to Canada to Argentina and so on. So the experience of that has helped me a great deal with the various tactics and the people that I've met and the things that they have told me and passed on to me from their experiences. You have a huge resume in the outdoor industry. I mean, you have a regular radio show on Saturdays, I believe. That is correct. I started the radio program in the early 90s. Uh, I, I just knew that uh, fishermen especially, not so much hunters, but fishermen especially are very gregarious. Uh, what you catching? Where have you been? Who did you go with? What did you do? Where did you go? What worked? What didn't work? Uh, fishermen are that way. And so I knew a, a radio program 
would work. So I pitched it to some radio stations in Atlanta, and I started in 1992. Oh, wow. So you, you, were, you were one of the original ones to really get out on the air and, and turn that passion into not just a weekday or weekend thing, but into a, a actual radio show. Yes, that's, that was my goal. I knew that that would work. It took some time uh, to get the radio station uh, personnel to listen to me. They thought, well, you know, who's going to listen to a guy at 4 a.m. in the morning? My response is, a lot of people will listen at 4 a.m. in the morning. And usually, uh, we we get dozens of calls, and we have a gigantic audience, and the driving force in that huge audience is that WSB radio out of Atlanta is one of the 21 only 50,000-watt overnight stations in North America. Wow. There never will be any more. There's one in New York, WGN Chicago, WWL New Orleans, WSB Atlanta, and so on. There never will be any more, so... At 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. before sunrise on a Saturday morning, I'm literally, I literally have an audience of about 400,000 people. So when I'm driving to the stand and I, and I flip on the radio, you're the voice I'm going to hear, right? Yeah, I think so. So with that, you know, it, it's a local station, but where can people tune in to hear you? Is, is there a specific um, radio station or something nationally they can look for to be able to listen to that? Well, you can listen to WSB. AM 750 uh, in, over the entire east coast of the United States. We routinely get calls from Iowa, Illinois, New York, as far away as Canada, and as far west as Texas. At that time of day, at 50,000 watts, see, all except 20 other radio stations, AM, all of those other stations are at about 500 watts. Oh, wow. So that that time of the day, that's uh, side note. That's how Wolfman Jack became famous. He did an overnight show from Tijuana, Mexico, at two hundred and fifty thousand watts overnight. So that time of day, without restrictions in wattage, he was heard from Tijuana to Alberta. Oh my gosh. That, yeah, that that's, that, that's how he became famous. And that's that's part of the appeal. I don't my audience is not at eight AM on Saturdays. My audience is on the way to the woods, on the way to the lake, on the way to the stream, early in the dark on Saturday mornings. On the way to work for a lot of those guys too. Absolutely. I have a huge listenership, if you will. Uh, for people that work at the airport, law enforcement officers, firemen, postal workers, people who deliver papers, people who are up early. Uh, they, they have a chance to live vicariously uh, through, through your radio station. Well, you know, you know I, I, uh, sometimes I think that. Sometimes I think, too, it's the only live audience that you can listen to on that time of day. Everything else is a rerun. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's a partnership to some degree, maybe it's not, but the audience is gigantic. That's pretty impressive. Well, I guess the the topic that we're wanting to cover today is about deer and the fundamentals yeah. of using deer calls, buck grunts to bleaks, as well as possibly even the rattles, the fundamentals, the, the ideology behind it. And yeah. um, so, I mean, I know based on all the years that you've been hunting, you've obviously used different styles and different tactics for hunting. I mean, have you used different hunting calls? Yes. Uh, and it goes back to, if I, I, I might start that topic by saying the following. I don't hunt bucks. I hunt does, and so do the bucks. If I can locate the does, then eventually I will locate the bucks because that's what they're looking for. So now my number one call is a doe bleat, a, a distress call from a fawn, or uh, and that's what attracts the does and makes them comfortable. And if I keep them around me, then the bucks will show up if I'm hunting at the correct time. Is there usually a, a time period that you feel that's more appropriate to use it? 
I mean, throughout the day, there's obviously morning, there's midday and afternoon, but there's obviously a time that you would use that call versus another call or not call at all. That's correct. I would use a doe bleat. Always I use the doe bleat first and the, or the fawn bleat. I use that first in the dark. That's to help settle everything down around me so that I'm not placing anything that around me is in distress. I don't want anything around me to be subjective or subject to noise or the smell or anything. So that's what I do. Well, so if, if I can picture it right, you're saying that if you're walking into your stand and it's dark, I guess it would be before sunlight, obviously, and you're climbing up your tree, you get into the spot, and uh, about how long do you usually wait to when you are finally settled in, do you pull out the dope leak and use uh, it? Immediately. Immediately. When so I, you're using that to help like to silence the, the noise you make. That is correct. Okay. Wh- whatever noise that I have made, I want it to be disguised as best I can. If the noise that I have made has attracted attention, I want to cover that right away. Oh, Maybe even walking in, I might turn the doe bleat over or squeeze the doe bleat or fawn mm-hmm. bleat just to cover it. How frequently would you use it? Uh, well, I- I'm a minimalist. I'll use it as little as possible to cover what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So I might couple maybe three times that from the last noise that I made one more time, and then I'm quiet. You know, you have a lot of hunters who have done so much research or, or they've been in the woods and got into a rhythm or a pattern of how they call, you know, whether it's the middle of the rut and they have a, a grunt every 15 minutes followed by a rattle. They, they tend to get in, in a rut of doing the same calls over and over or sticking to a pattern. Uh, how do you how do you approach that? I mean, do you really try and vary it in various your tactics and what you're using for calls? I, I separate the calls. If you're using a doe or fawn bleat, mm-hmm. that's what I that's when I'm attracting or covering my sound and attracting or settling down whatever does might be in the area. Okay, bang, that's over. I don't use that again. Now with regards. The grunt call, that's only in the rut, and that is only when I have does in my sight. That's just not a blind call. Regrettably, I believe, and it's just for me, I think most hunters, whether they're turkey hunters, duck hunters, deer hunters, whatever, they fall in love with their call. They use it entirely too much. So do they... um Oh, go ahead. If if you don't get a response with a grunt call in two times, put it away. Hmm. Wait at least a half an hour, maybe even an hour, and then try it again. You have does in front of you in a food plot, whatever the case might be, and you grunt call two times and you don't get a response or you don't get a run in, you don't get a, a, a buck to come in, Stop it. Just let things have happen that is naturally. So what's your opinion on on rattling? I mean, is that something that people tend to just use as kind of that locator call uh, where they're doing it just to see? Rattling has to do, to me, the rattling has to do generally with the doe-to-buck ratio in whatever area you are, wherever you hunt. Now, for instance, in Georgia, in most of Georgia, <clears throat> it's too bad, but the the rattling, the ratio of uh, bucks to does is about 1 to 10. Does to bucks, 10 to 1. Bucks don't need to fight to get does. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know of some <clears throat> uh, biologists who say that the sound of a rattle will run the bucks away. They don't want to fight. They've got a doe with them already. Why leave and go pick a fight with somebody that really may hurt you just because you hear the rattle? Now, if you're in Texas, that's a whole different story. Rattling works big time because the doe-to-buck ratio is much less. Two to one, maybe three to one. So the bucks are alert to that sound and they say aha while some other two guys are fighting 
there's a dough there that I might need to help out. Again, that goes back to my minimalist tendencies, no matter what the cause are. Most people call too much. I think I fell right into that this Saturday. Uh, I was reading up. I was trying to test something new. And one of the things I overheard one time is that if you're going to read something, at least put it into action and test it and not just read it and consume all this information, but never really apply anything. Learn. Mm -hmm. And so I read an article. It was talking about when it came to rattling that you would do it early morning, right when sun was just about to rise, but you would do it probably about three minutes long. And then you'd wait about a minute or two and do another three minutes long, but you can secondly do this over and over for about 30 minutes and in a, a given time, but you would do it incredibly loud. And they said in certain areas that will actually help draw in deer. But I guess you're saying even in Georgia, that might actually be a harmful thing. It's surprisingly, uh, I, I have hunted in Georgia and this, and quite frankly, this goes back to my minimalist nature. I've hunted in Georgia since 1965. I have never rattled in a book. Wow. Never. I have, I know because I've seen it happen. I've tested it. I have had books in the area that I could see and I grunted and rattled and they left. You know, it's, it's, it's improper and I think incorrect to think that all bucks want to fight. I have had biologists tell me, and I'm a member of QDMA, I have had QDMA biologists tell me they know of bucks that don't fight or mate at all. They will run from a fight, and they have no interest in visiting the does. So the smarter ones. <laughs> yeah, so really they'll, they'll, they'll handle business later. They don't have to fight for it. They're big. They're the boss. And they'll let the little guys fight it out. Then I'll visit later, and I'll take over. So really the, the theory or the thought of bucks being dominant um, hounds it isn't, isn't so much true, and it really comes down to the doe and buck population. If they don't need to be dominant, they're not going to be dominant. I agree. That is, that is correct. I, we, I think, fellows, I think we overthink all this. Okay? <laughs> we, do, we do entirely too much. If you're in an area with a food supply, bedding areas, and deer that have left you sign that they exist, then just go sit quietly, cover your scent, face the wind, and shut up. <laughs> well, you know, talking about that, you know, overthinking something, you know, I've, I've had enough fortune that I've been able to sit down with a couple of different call manufacturers and... and see the background of how they made a call and why they made it. And, and there's a few out there that have tried a few new things and, and they gave me some really good points and, and why they did it. I want to bounce them off you and, and kind of see your take on it. Okay. I'll be happy to, but just keep, keep this in mind. Mm -hmm. They're selling calls. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. So. And that's, and then talking to someone with as much experience as you um, yes. and seeing it active, you know, what's your thought is, so when you are out and you're calling, whether it's you know mule deer, whitetail, elk, or blacktail, when they call, you know if you were to talk to someone, as soon as they plug their nose, they sound like this because they're talking through a single air path. Whenever we talk to anyone one-on-one -on -one or in a room, we're actually breathing through our nose and our mouth, and we use both chambers to talk. The, the theory that I've had a couple people um, talk to me about is, you know, by using a single chamber or a single, single tube for any of your calls, it's essentially you sound like you are a, a deer with a colt. You know, what's your, what's your thought process on that? And, and, and again, it's a, it is a great advertisement and a great ploy, but where do, where's the realisticness of that in the woods? If I were a scientist to be able to respond to that in a scientific manner, I would, I would pat myself on the back. I, I got to tell you guys, listen to this and see how it sounds to you. Okay, yes, sir. We 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 hear a grunt call. We make a grunt call, or we hear our fellow hunter make the grunt call. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you think the deer heard that in the same way? As in, Did he? 
I did more he than hear likely. that the way you heard it? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Does he? You know, are you spooking the guy or are you calling him in? I don't know. I don't. I can't match it with my ears. I can't match what he hears. So I'm 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 just the kind of guy. You know, you're to make a call, whether it's a uh, whether you call too much with a with a yelper. Uh, or a gobble call, you know, whatever that is, whether it's a grunt call, whether it's the dobly, I gotta tell you, there's a big downside to that stuff. And if you, I am of the guy who says, I'm gonna stick with the basics. I'm gonna call once or twice. I'm gonna cover my sound, as I said, with the phone bleat. I may grunt call once or twice when I have does in front of me. Other than that, my deer hunting day is going to be going to be governed by I hunt high in the morning, I hunt low in the afternoon, I hunt with the wind in my face, and I hunt close to but not directly over the scrape or rub lines. Now if you stick to that over time, you will be a more successful hunter. You will see more deer and have more options to take your trophies or the does that you want. Well, you know, to dive into that a little bit, something you just said, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an obvious statement for guys who are out west and who are hunting large mountain ranges, the hunt, hunt high in the morning, hunt low in the evening. But for guys down here in the south where elevation change isn't something that is very dramatic, What's that cutoff for you? Where's that high? Where's that low? It it, do, it doesn't matter. Don't don't overthink it. Okay. If you've got a place that's fifty feet higher, then you hunt the high spot in the morning. Are you in a tower stand? You get in that tower stand early and you hunt high in the morning to cover your scent. What is the the what is the major Foil, the major mistake that a deer hunter makes, it's because of his scent. You hunt with the wind at the back of your neck, you're going to fail. I don't care how many times you grunt. I don't care what kind of calls you make. I don't care what kind of camo you're on. If the wind is at the back of your neck, that hunt will not work. So it's scent. That's the number one thing I know of. Well, no, I've been told of, and it's documented that there a doe had was successfully bred, had fawns, and lived several years of her life, and she was blind. She maintained and stayed alive and take took care of her offspring with her nose. That's the major thing, not grunting in a deer. You can grunt all you want with a perfect grunt call. If the wind's at the back of your neck, that hunt will fail. Hmm. And, you know, I'm emphatic about that sort of thing. I'm old enough and it's been 50 years in the woods to say there aren't any tricks. There are basics that make you a successful hunter. If you can fine-tune that hunt, I know I had a guy uh, email me the other day. He said, I've been hunting in a swamp bottom for the last three years for a particular deer unsuccessfully. I heard what you said about hunting high in the morning, and I found out that I was spooking the deer out of the bottom because the scent carried my, the wind and the thermals carried my scent up the hill into the bedding area, so he just left. Then I hunted high with the scent being carried in my face, and I bagged him. Will that always work? Heavens no. And when you talk about increasing your chances, you're only talking about 3 or 4%. There aren't any tricks but except for the wind. He, the white-tailed deer, scent capabilities or scent detection capabilities is 10,000 times better than ours. We can't even imagine his capability. That's what bags the book well um you're talking about usually if you're hunting in an area that's a food plot or uh, but what happens if you're in an area that's either high pressured and you know that if you're just sitting in one area 
there are deer around, but you need to find a way to call them in. So you're still thinking that in that situation, if you're in a high pressured area or if you're in a food plot area, you still use the same tactic. Uh, you don't change it up in general, depending on which area that you're trying to Correct. hunt. All I want to do is locate the does. Locate the does. I want to locate the does. Where are the does feeding? What are their habits? Where do they bed? When do they come out? If they come out at 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, that's when I want to be there because the butt wakes. Think, try try and, and picture what goes on. All right, he, he rarely sleeps, especially during the rut, right? He may sleep five or six minutes at a time. And quite frankly, if you don't know this, he sleeps with his eyes open. Really? So, so he's he's in the bedding area, and he sleeps five minutes, and he wakes up and looks around. Then he sleeps five minutes, he wakes up and looks around. Oh, he sees movement. Oh, who is that? Oh, it's a doe. Well, let me walk over there and check her out. She might be just right for me. That's where I am. It's where she is. I want to be where she is, and if that fawn bleat settles her down so that she's nice and comfortable and stays in the food plot, stays in the area, and other does see her and say, well, I, you know, everything's cool. I'll go out there and feed with her. And the buck wakes up, and he looks over and says, hmm, there's a potential girlfriend. I think I'll go over there and check her out. You've seen it a million times, haven't you? <laughs> Absolutely. Would you use the dobly as a answer to let's say a buck you heard in the background a buck did call or you heard another doe in the background either somewhere around make a certain call would you answer by using a dobly as well no i would not you wouldn't okay once that sound is made again let's go back to what she hears what she says how other people hear her versus me Am I making the exact sound that's appropriate? Maybe. Maybe not. If that sound has already been made, I'm going to leave it alone. That sound, that's music to my ears. Those are here. They're close by. They feel nice. They're talking to each other. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Even if you didn't, let's say you didn't hear the doe itself, but you heard a buck around. They just had a little grunt. Um, There's no one around hunting around you but you did hear a grunt from a buck somewhere, would you do some sort of call to let him know where you're at? Uh, that, that speculation, I would, not, I would not discount that. Okay. Okay? Uh, I, would, I would not discount answering that. That's not something that I've had to do or done many times. Okay. The only times that, uh, uh, the, the times that are, that I feel like a grunt call worked for me, that was the way I felt about it. You follow? I'm not absolutely 100% certain that's what changed the deal. That's not necessarily what closed the deal, but I felt like it did. I don't know, okay? But I have been in other areas like in Oklahoma. I was fortunate enough to spend a couple of days and fish with fish, but listen to me, hunted with, <laughs> I hunted with Dick Kirby. And Dick Kirby is the founder of Quaker Boy Game Calls. Oh, wow. And I went, hunted one day with him, and he grunted in my largest whitetail kill ever. However, okay, however, I'm going to footnote that. That deer was coming to a doe that was in front of me. Now, did the call get him to come in, or was the doe's presence that got him to come in? I don't know. It worked that time, and I would try it again. Well, I mean, that, 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 that book came in from that book came in from 250 yards, and I don't know this, but I suspect that was the doe that he was with, and she wandered away, and he tracked her down. I don't know that it was a challenge of the grunt that got him to come in. Romantically, let's say that it did and it worked. Mm-hmm. Well, that being said, you know that's kind of another point. We're talking about different kinds of calls, and whether it's doe bleats or fawn neighing, um, grunts or snort wheezes. You know, another attractor that people seem to be kind of fantasizing about and leaning towards now or, or maybe it's the next fad 
is is the actual decoys. They're taking the the turkey type decoy uh, theory and putting it with yes. deer. What yes. what's your process? What, what's your thoughts on, well, on that? Well, you know, guys, I got to tell you, uh, and you won't be surprised at this. I don't think uh, basis the the other subjects of our call and and how I look at things of this nature. I've used a uh, I've used a buck decoy two times in a food plot where I could view or could observe other deer taking i was at a perfect position to say all right here comes a deer here comes a buck let's see what he does i wasn't going to kill anything that day i would have i had a i had my muzzle loader i would have i could have if something that i just couldn't turn down showed up but i saw bucks come into the edge of the food plot from the woods from the heavy timber and see my decoy which was a very timid-looking forkhorn. And they turned and left. Wow. Now, is that a blanket statement for the use of a decoy? Heavens, no. But those, that's my experience. Mm-hmm. They, they came in, they looked, they noticed, they put their nose in the air. Maybe it was me they smelled. They put their nose in the air and they left, and I didn't see them again. The next day, I hunted the same blind, the same weather, the same food plot, the same everything, except I didn't use that decoy, and I took a nice eight-pointer. He came into the food plot unchallenged, and he was harvested. So, you know, talking in in fishing terms, um, it... There, there's a lot of lures out there that are really good at catching fishermen, not so much fish. Absolutely. Of- They're made to fill tackle boxes. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, really. I mean, if you want to be a good bass fisherman, just tie on a plastic worm. You'll be fine. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I'm a big fly fisherman, and, and some of the stuff that I've seen created um, sells really well and gets gets a lot of guys really excited, but... I, there's a lot of things I've never even seen cat, catch a uh, catch a fish before. Absolutely, it's according to who's using it. Absolutely. Now I will tell you that it doesn't make sense if the water temperature is 42 degrees. It doesn't make sense for you to use a buzz bait. But if the water's 42 degrees, it does make sense for you to use a crawfish imitation like a mop jig or a, or a living rubber jig or a hair jig, mm-hmm. because that's what the fish feed on when the water temperature is 42 degrees. Mm-hmm. There's smart things to throw, but you had to eat. I get, it tickles me. Somebody will call my radio program in, in November and they'll say, O'Neill, I, you know, I was using a Rapala last April and I just really caught them. It's not working now. And I say, Hey, Dumbo, they're not there now. Do something else. They're not always... this. You know something, fellas, think about this. What makes Kevin, Kevin Van Dam, Bill Dance, and Roland Martin so successful? Is it their technique, their feel, the way they set the hook? What is it? They understand the game. They cast... Where the fish are, that's all. And the and with regards the use of decoys and and calls and all of that when you're when you're whitetail hunting, believe me, the guy who kills the biggest uh, trophy every year is the guy who goes the most often. It's the guy who's in the woods every single weekend, every single holiday. It's that guy. That's the one who does it, and he hunts where the deer. Are. I had a guy the other day, he sent me an email, said, O'Neill, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't ever see any deer where I hunt. My response was, "Did have they told you they're there? <laughs> what do you mean? Are there, are there any tracks, any rubs, any scrapes, any does? No, 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 no. Well, obviously there aren't any deer there. They will let you know they are there. They don't know any better. Mm-hmm. And they believe me, if, if you're not successful with it, there is a reason for it. 
you move, you hunt low in the morning and high in the afternoon, you don't cover your scent, okay, or there are no deer there, you make too much noise, you hunt with the, with the sun in your face instead of the sun behind you, they see you. They're not dummies, but they don't, re- you know, the deer doesn't say, you know, I, you know, it was last year or the year before, I was up there and I heard a gunshot. I better not go up there again. No, they don't do that. They go, if they say, ooh, I think there's a doe up there on that hill. I'm going to go over there and look. I'll go over there and see if she could be a girlfriend of mine. They don't think, well, I better check that blind because there was a guy in that blind last year. No, they don't. So Basics. Do you, well, Basics. do you think there's any validity to so many guys that hunting out of tree stands are, are just absolutely positive of, of switching trees, even within a area that they're hunting, even with the, within a 20 or 30-yard area? They consistently change their stand because they think that these deer are walking, looking up, and they recognize, oh, that is a hunter, or that is not it's, supposed it's to be not, there. It's not above me to believe that a deer could walk along his trail, notice movement, notice smell, mm-hmm. and think, uh-oh, this is not a good place for me to be. I'm going to stay out of here for a couple of days. But that's mm-hmm. about it. Okay. The next time he heads in that direction, if he doesn't see you, he doesn't smell you, mm-hmm. then... You know, then that's his signal. I don't think he naturally looks up mm-hmm. at all. Okay. Now, there may be, you know, there may be that 4 or 5% of the guy who goes in the woods, and it's sure enough, the deer looks right at him. Well, there are no 100% in this deal. Mm-hmm. There are no guarantees in this deal. I'm the guy who says, narrow down your mistakes. Nar- in explode your chances by sticking to the basics mm-hmm. over time you will see more deer you will take more deer if you stick to the basics now about that movement of a stand mm-hmm. if you're in a stand and that afternoon on a november 22nd the prevailing wind is at the back of your neck you better leave Go to the other side of the food plot. Go to the other side of the trail because that's going to stay that way over the next few days. It, if, if you think that that wind has spooked the deer out from those in front of you, I'd go to a different place altogether. I wouldn't move 30 yards. I'd move 300 yards. Okay. If you've been in the woods three days, in a stand, in a box blind, on the ground, wherever, you've been there three days in the same spot, Okay. He knows you're there. He has smelled you. And so have the does. So the does don't come, and then he doesn't come either. Believe me, if the does aren't there, why would he be there? Right. He's looking for the does. So all you have to do is be where the does are, quite frankly. The food the, the food source in the rut doesn't make a bit of difference in the world as far as the buck goes. It's the doe. If she comes in to feed... He will he will come by and look. He may be in the woods, 30 yards into the woods, and look into the food plot. Oh, I already know her. Uh, she turned me down yesterday. I'm going to go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave her alone. But there's eight. Oh, my goodness. There's eight does out there. I better go look. I'll, I'll give you a look. I'll let you look around. <laughs> well, I know you said that, you know, you've never you've never rattled in if I'm correct, you never actually rattled in blind calling a buck, but do you have a story, something that sticks out where it was some kind of call that really did make the difference for that hunt? All right. Let me adjust my, let me adjust my comments because I have evidently misled you. I have rattled in books, mm-hmm. but not in the Southeast. It was in Texas where the buck to doe ratio was two does for one buck. Oh, man, yeah, I rattled them in like mad. I'd have five or six bucks come in at once looking for a fight. But they are incredibly lonesome. They don't have a doe with them. I would challenge anyone, and it would take a scientist to tell me this and convince me, 
if a you know a whitetail stays with a doe for a couple of days. You know that. No, this is not that. a quickie, you know. <laughs> this is not a quickie. He does, he does, fellas, he does her over and over and over and over again. As long as she is receptive, he will stay with her. Really? Yes. Huh. So I've, I'm this book. I'm this big eight-pointer. I'm a 165 class. I'm the boss book, and I've got a lovely lady sitting right next to me. And she still loves me. And I hear some rattling. Fully on that. I don't need to go anywhere. I got it made. But in Texas and other areas, you know, that are more thinly populated, or the buck to doe ratio is different, and I'm lonesome. I'm ready to fight. I'm looking for a doe, and I hear rattling. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over and give that a try. There might be some ladies there that I could steal. Mm-hmm. So yes, I have rattled in bucks, but not in Georgia. I've never, ever seen that work. So it basically means, really, depending on where you're hunting, which state you might be hunting, it would be important for someone to actually learn what the buck-doe ratio is. Absolutely. You know, for instance, does a Texas deer change his or adapt his behavior according to what he hears from the Georgia deer? Well, no. no. A deer's a deer. He's a deer, and he, he is in that environment uh, a whitetail buck has a range of about a mile square, okay? One mile square is 640 acres. That's where he often spends his entire life. If he has food, cover, and ladies to be friends, he stays right there. Why would he want to leave? Mm-hmm. Unless he's pressured to leave by human encroachment, and he still won't do that unless the does are gone, too. He doesn't think things through like we attribute entirely too much intelligence to this guy. He's not (laughs) smart. He's just wary. He doesn't reason as to whether or not he needs to go into this food plot. It's his sense that tells him, ooh, I see three does there. I'm going to go check them out. He doesn't say, I might not go because last year there was a guy in that tower stand over there. I better be careful. No. Unless he has smelled you, you're good. Again, guys, I oversimplify. But back to your question about rattling. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. But it wasn't here. It was a different environment, a different mix of dota buck ratio oh it's worse it's exciting you can hear them running toward you it's exciting as hell but then again you might have five or six that show up it's so seldom that you have the buck to show up under those circumstances you know why he's got a doe already it's the guy who doesn't have a doe that shows up first that's interesting that's actually a really interesting thought and 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 believe me fellas listen, listen to me now I'm not a QDMA scientist. Mm-hmm. That's just from a few years in the woods. And I, I oversimplify. I'm sorry, but I do. Keep it simple, stupid, right? Pardon me? Keep, uh, the, the old adage, keep it simple, stupid. Keep it good. simple, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, well, just, you know, it's, it's uh, I know I was in a blind in Texas with my grandson, Travis. He has a show called Travis Johnson's Outdoors. Mm-hmm. We're in a ground blind. Eight pointer comes in. He takes his, he's bow hunting. He takes a shot and misses. All right, let's leave. No, just sit still. That deer will be back. How do you know that? There are six does in front of us right now. They didn't spook, and there will be more does. You think that he's going to go elsewhere? No. His desire. His natural instinct is to come back. He doesn't know that there was somebody in the stand trying to kill him. He just got spooked by the sound, and he left. He's a wary guy. So he says, I don't know what that was. It went flying over my back, but I didn't like it. But it's gone now, so I'm going to go back. Mm-hmm. The deer came back in about 20 minutes, and it took a nice eight-pointer with his bow. Had you said, oh, boy, I got this figured out. We need to go elsewhere. That wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. 
you would have walked out of the stand, spooked all the does out of the food plot, and the hunt would have been over. Hmm. Patience kills game, whether it's whitetails, turkeys, ducks, quail. It's patience that takes wild game. You know, kind of, uh, kind of switching, switching ideas here for just a second. You know, okay. We've, I've had a lot of people ask me, and, and I've seen a lot of questions. You know, as far as down south, it's really about patterning, patterning a, a specific buck. What's your belief on the ability to actually pattern specific animals down here in the south? A- a- absolutely, and and I and I will lend uh, credence to what I understand from QDMA. According to them, Quality Deer Management Association and their scientists and their GPS tracking collars that they put on bucks, Mm -hmm. as the buck gets older, he will narrow down his range. As long as he has does around, he will narrow his range down to something like 90 acres. Oh, wow. That's kind of a surprise, isn't it? That's dramatically dramatically different than a square mile. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, he. I mean, why does he need to go anywhere? He's a pretty much. Think about it. He's pretty much of a lazy sob, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> he gets his stomach full. He goes to sleep, and in the fall of the year, he mates. What else does he have to do? He doesn't go to work. He doesn't cut down trees. He makes a few scrapes on the ground, rubs his antlers in the trees, and rubs the velvet off and leaves his scent on limbs. So what? What else does he have to do other than stay alive? Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to go to work. He doesn't say, hey, you know something, it would be nice. I'm a Georgia deer, but I never have found out what Alabama looks like. I think I'll go over there. Greener on the <laughs> other side. <laughs> yeah. He stays right there. That actually brings up a, like an idea on this. Let's say you had a deer that does normally do a square mile, which you said I think it was 600 and something uh, yeah, square feet. Uh, okay. One square mile is 640 acres. Okay, there you go. Now, if you had it where it's condensed down to their 90 acres, they have less movement, less things they have to do. Now, when it comes to buck and does, usually they say does have a better flavor because it's not as gamey, so to speak. And bucks usually have a, a higher density, definitely a bigger game flavor. But now it comes into that perspective of, is that also because they're constantly moving around going those extra mile? Or would it be if you happen to have that 90 acre one, I wonder if that buck would have less of a gamey flavor because they're not constantly moving around. They're just pretty much eating. The gamey flavor you're talking about is according to what he eats. Okay. I mean, if you had a, if you raised a white-tailed deer in a barn on corn, Boy, it tastes great. His gamey flavor is according to what he eats. I just thought maybe it might have been based on because they're constantly moving, they become the more Well, gamey. that that too, that too. Uh, he's energized and so on, uh, and, you know, and he's 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 full of uh, testosterone, mm-hmm. and that does indeed affect him. That's why the does taste so much better. They don't have testosterone; they have estrogen, mm-hmm. and they're not as wild. I'll be, you know, let's be fair. If all I want is the meat, I'm just going to shoot does. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. That's yeah. infinitely, infinitely better. If I want something to hang on the wall, and I have lots of them, then I shoot a buck. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have one specific story, kind of going back, backtracking a little bit to the game calls? Is there one instance or something that sticks out in your mind where using a specific call uh, really made the difference with that particular hunt? Well, I have to say that, uh, and I, I have to return to it when I was with Dick Kirby in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. He called, he grunted. I have to think, you know, let, let, I'll, I'll try not to be skeptical by saying there was a doe in front of me. Dick Kirby grunted three times and a 167 class whitetail with a 25 inch inside spread wow. sprinted across 250 yards across a food plot and stopped 70 yards in front of me. It only took about two minutes or less. Was it exciting? Absolutely. Was it worth it? Absolutely. And I can look at that mount right here at the cabin, and he's very impressive. Wow. Now, now here's something, though, that I might add to that, okay? There was a biologist that lived on that ranch. He had never... And he was out there every day. He was a 
He was a, uh, a farmer, a biologist, a deer hunter, and he had 12 different cameras on that property. Mm-hmm. He had never seen that deer. Really? Now, what is that a tribute to? I'll give you a lesson here. Is that a tribute to the stealth and capabilities of him remaining hidden? Maybe. Or was it because he ran out of does wherever he was and he traveled? If you will look at, at the, the, the two books called Legendary Whitetails, which describes and has photos and measurements and the story about the top 40 high-scoring whitetails ever taken in the world, okay? If you will read those books, you will find that most of the time, the hunter that took that deer was the first time he had ever been seen on that property. Now, then you say, is it because he's so smart, so wildly, so wary, or was it the first time he ever showed up there? According to QDMA, during the height of the rut, if there are no does that are receptive for the buck, he will leave, and he will travel as much as seven miles, and they've done that with GPS collars. So, quite frankly, to, to be on a piece of property and you suddenly see a 180 that people have been hunting for, for decades, and nobody's ever seen a 180 before. Nobody's ever seen this deer before. And all of a sudden, there he is. Where in the world has he been? Well, he might have been five miles away. And now he showed up looking for does. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, very interesting. So I guess it really goes back to your very and initial see, point of hunt the does. Oh, absolutely. If you hunt where the does, he's looking for the does. Why shouldn't you look for the does? Mm-hmm. That's that. Let's, let's, let's take it another step. That scrape line that you're hunting over, that rub and scrape line that has so much great appeal to you, that's his route going to the food plot where the does are. Hmm. So why don't you just put your blind there, put your tree stand there. Over time, you will be more successful. Whether you rattle, whether you grunt, whether you use a, a, a fawn bleed, over time basics kills whitetails and i guess and there's another point of what you're kind of explaining is too much is a good thing so in the sense if someone is using a rattle or a buck grunt or a doe bleak if they're constantly using it too frequently it would actually do more harm for them anyways because it it, it might sound good to them but it might not be good for the, the deer itself yeah I, you know i i guess guys i gotta tell you i am always suspect of what I do. I'm always looking, O'Neill, is this the right thing? O'Neill, are you playing within the rules that you've established for yourself? Are you listening to that grunt call? Does he hear it in the same way? All of those things play me to reduce my trickery, if you will. Hmm. And, but, and, and, and I'll qualify that, okay? Let me qualify that for a minute by saying that most of my deer hunting is in the southeast. Now, those rules may not apply in Nebraska or South Dakota or East uh, or East Colorado. They may, you know, somebody else might say, well, you, O'Neill, you are a real dummy. These are the things we have to do here. Okay, I grant you, you do. Where I hunt, you don't. Hmm. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. It's a different hunt. I mean... What I will do on opening day on the 18th is nowhere near what a guy in South Dakota will do on the opening day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a completely different ball game. It's a different critter. It's a different animal. One time I hunted in uh, up in above Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, up beyond a little town called Prince Albert. I mean, I stayed there for six days. The high temperature was one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I drove a I drove a four wheeler twenty two miles to get to the stand every day. Okay, That's awesome. no, there was no heater, and I was in a pop up blind on top of a platform in the trees. Snow was blowing in. I raked the snow off of me all during the day. 
Okay, I saw one. I had a pile. I had a. Uh, I had several bales of alfalfa hay out in front of me to attract the deer. The first poor sob that walked in, I shot him. I was ready to leave. Okay, it was the biggest buck you ever seen. That was no hunt. That was an endurance test. Mm-hmm. And the first poor guy that walked in, he was about a one twenty. I said, "I'm going home." Bang. <laughs> now you say, "Well, you know, you're you're not much of a hunter." Well, you know something when you've been in the woods. For five straight days, for 12 hours a day, and the high temperature is 1, the low is 20, then you may change your mind about that. That 120 was a a whole different type of trophy. That's exactly right. So that's different, see? Everywhere you hunt's different. You know know when the, guys, you know when the rut is in Alabama? I believe it's later. Much later. January. January, yeah. wonder why that is. Um... I'm going to leave you with that question. You need to figure that out. If it's a white-tailed deer in the southeast, why is the rut in Alabama in January and the rut in Georgia is in November? You need to know that. <laughs> that I, that's going to be something I'm going to research. I have no idea. Uh-huh. See, the more you know, the more you understand, the more you know about the land where you hunt, the woods, whether they're creeks and hardwoods or pines, whether they're food plots, The more you know, the more you can enjoy it and the more productive you can be. The guy who goes on opening weekend and he drives his four-wheeler to the tower stand and sits in it, fellas, that's not hunting. That's shooting. It really is. And, hey, listen, the guy who can, you know, I I cover my walk into the stand. I walk to the stand. I cover my walk in with with a fawn bleed. Pretty good idea, huh? I think that's a great idea. It sure is, isn't it? See, I used to do, when I was leaving to go home, I used to always have my grunt call just every once in a while as I made more noises. I would grunt just a few times just so if there was a deer around, they would think it would be a Not a, a bad idea at all. It's a That is an excellent idea, an excellent practice. Hmm. My only comment about any of your calls is do it as little as possible. You know the the biggest culprit in that in that vein is the turkey hunter. <laughs> I mean, he, he'll call. Yeah. The turkey hunter sits at a base of a tree and calls fifty times. He shouldn't call more than three. If you call and you got a response and you call one more time and he answers again, he knows where you are. Mm-hmm. You do not need to call again. And boy, that's tough. The waiting game. You bet you. Patience kills turkeys. I had a good friend who's passed away now. His name was Roscoe Reams. Roscoe's the best turkey hunter I've ever been around. And he said he called three times. He killed in his career, and he started hunting in the 1940s. He called, he, he bagged, either called in or shot himself 547 eastern wild turkeys. That's incredible. Evidently, his practice is work. No kidding. That's that's person the pudding right there. You bet. You bet. Now, I expect a call from one of you birds sometime soon and explain to me, because you know my telephone number, mm-hmm. I want you to tell me how is it that the white-tailed deer with the same number of hours of declining daylight, that is the photo period, why do they rut in Alabama in January and in Georgia in November? There is an explanation for that. You will definitely be getting a call from me. I will find that answer. <laughs> I hope yeah. so. It will mean a lot to you. And it's, it's, it's got to be something we're overlooking. It's ultra simple, but it's important that you know it. For, after all, it's one of my favorite subjects. When is what determines the rut, fellas? What when is it? What kicks it off? I'm a, that's a question. What kicks off the rut for the white-tailed deer? Temperature and moon phase. No, no, really? absolutely not. That that has to do with his activity level. You know, uh, mm-hmm. the guys will at will will send me an email on my website and they'll say, O'Neill, when is the rut in Missouri? Same time as last year, huh? Certainly, it's the same time as last year. 
the declining number of hours in daylight triggers the estrus in the dough and the testosterone in the book. It's exactly the same time year after year after year. He doesn't know any better. He doesn't say, you know, I'm not feeling real good. I think I'll wait. The doe doesn't say, I'm not, you know, I don't think I'll have any phones this year. I just think I'll deny everybody this year. No, it's exactly the same time as the year before. It's the declining number of hours of daylight. It's the photo period. What do you think triggers the the, the mating activity of the wild turkey in the spring? It's the increased number of hours of daylight. It happens at the same time every year. That's why the turkey season is in the springtime instead of the fall. Hmm. Oh, boy, have you got a lot to learn. Yeah. Well, I have to do some studying. That, if you're a deer hunter, you should know that answer bullseye. You should know. And, of course, it's a simple answer. When is the whitetail rut on the Georgia coast uh, in, uh, for white-tailed deer? That's a question. You want to answer it? Well, I guess you would say it would be based on the, the estrus level, but... It's the same so, as, the answer is the same time as last year. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you got me? Yeah. So the only thing what, I can... what? Let me ask you a question. For the white-tailed deer along the Georgia coast, what will be the time of the rut in 2018? The same, same time as, as it always Same last as last year. year. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Now, you say, well, what if it's the full moon versus the waning moon? Maybe, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's colder than... All that has to do with the activity level, but it doesn't change the timing of the rut. So the only thing, and I'm loving to talking because it's, it's very intriguing and trying to figure out why, um, but the only thing I can find out research-wise looking through all this is is different restocked areas of different strains of deer, um, North Carolina deer that were restocked into Alabama in the 40s. Okay, you just answered my question. Okay, so, but then how, so then that brings up a whole other question, because the thing that baffles me is, so if those deer, and just to kind of recap so I can catch Travis up and make sure we're on the same page. Well, I'm already up to date. Okay, cool. In, 19, in the 1940s, it looks like uh, Alabama was restocked um, with deer from North Carolina. But no, they weren't. Really? They were generally stocked with deer from the southwest corner of Alabama. Those deer, over time, had, if, if you were, if a deer was fawned or spawned in uh, January, February, then the spring floods came, those deer drowned. Okay. So the only deer that survived were the ones that were born after the spring floods on the Alabama River. The other ones died. So when it came time to restock Alabama with white-tailed deer, they used those deer from southwest Alabama along the river. Because in Alabama along the river, the, the, in the springtime, the, the, uh, uh, the river's a mile wide. Mm-hmm. If you're a fawn, you drowned. But if you were born after the spring floods, then when you rutted, when you were a, a, a doe or when you were a buck, you rutted late because your fawns, your life cycle was that they were born after the spring floods. And that's why the Alabama deer ruts late. So basically, because they were moved in from another location, the ancestry of the deer, it stayed the same. It just, they're in a new location. Correct. Uh-huh. You can't change your genes. That is very interesting. Isn't that nice? Yeah. What a great call you guys made tonight. That's crazy. We, we've it's unbelievable, isn't it? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you sure you have a lot of knowledge, and I mean, it comes from all the years you spent in the woods. Uh, we we really appreciate you coming on, and we really hope to have you back on for some more topics. It's, it's you call anytime, fellas. If it helps you, then you can always count on me to do that. And so if, for, if you want to find more information about you, I mean, what's the best way they can find you or follow you? Uh, well, you know, it, all you do is look up O'Neill Outside. I have a YouTube channel, uh, Facebook at O'Neill Outside. Uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, a couple of million people either write, hear, see, or listen to O'Neill every week. And uh, 
yeah, I'll keep it going as long as I can. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, that's that's a huge resume, and that's that's a lot of time put in. Well, it's fun. It still is. I'll quit when it's not fun any longer. <laughs> there you go. Well, O'Neill, I really do appreciate you coming on. And like Scott was saying, we would love to have you back on, on a future podcast for sure. You bet. Anytime, pal. Yeah, man, that was a great interview with O'Neill Williams. He he has a really good foundation of what he does. He's stern on how he hunts himself. And I, I think that this spectrum of what we're covering for this particular series, he was the right guy for it. What do you think, Scott? Wow. You know what? He's got so much knowledge and it, there's a lot of questions he brought up that even now I'm thinking about even. It, it just lends to the importance of knowing your and knowing your surrounding areas and, and what's really affecting those deer populations. So again, you guys, I just want to reiterate, this is a two-part series. The next one that we'll have coming up is going to be on the contrast. We're going to have a guy on that really wholeheartedly believes in exact timing and rhythms of using those same calls. It's going to be a, a great contrast to the two of them. Listen to them, you know, take what you want from either of them, and really go out and test them out. That's the best way to get better or to learn. And we hope you've learned a little bit from this podcast. All right. Please go to our website at www.mybowrush.com forward slash 004 to get the show notes to this episode. And as well, we would really appreciate it if you can take a moment and give us a five-star review. It would take just but a moment of your time. We made it pretty simple. Just go to our website, mybowrush.com forward slash iTunes, and it will redirect you to the appropriate page. So you can make this a lot simpler on your behalf, which will help us in the long run. Hey, you guys, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bow Rush Podcast. I'm Scott Nelson. I'm Travis Stowe. And we're still working on the closing. <laughs> <laughs> no rush for a Bow Rush ending. <laughs> we gotta have something dude we're gonna do this every time until we figure something out it's gonna click and we're we'll like oh yeah once in the field aim small miss small filled those fridges that's deer for go get a bow rush nice <laughs> <laughs> that's so atrocious do you have an idea for an ending Please submit it because we've been sitting here for about 30 minutes trying to figure one out. Clearly, we're in no rush for a boat rush ending. We need a catchphrase. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>